loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm talking with Rosalie Bluston. Rosalie is an award-winning writer whose plays have been produced in New York and internationally. Her articles and fiction have appeared in consumer and literary magazines, including AARP, The Magazine, Moxie, and Pulse Literary Journal, and as part of the anthology, The Widow's Handbook. Rosalie has taught on the faculties of several universities, and you can find out everything about her and more and especially about her new book we'll be talking about today, at rosaliebluston.com. I'm going to spell that R-O-S-E-L-E-E-B-L-O-O-S-T-O-N.com. Welcome, Rosalie. Hello. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. And on such an exciting week, because your your book had its had its opening this week. Uh, yes. It's, it's inauguration, I guess. Yes, the launch, the launch. The launch, uh, yes. And um, so you're, I'm sure, quite busy, so I'm, I'm very uh, happy to have you here today. Well, I'm delighted to talk about dying in Dubai and to speak with you. Um, just makes the week better. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, what I want to appreciate in particular, uh, I'm, I'm especially drawn to memoirs and as a way to navigate grief. Uh, it's always been true. When my wife died, I, I that's all I could read. And um, mm-hmm. I, now I read all different kinds of grief books, obviously, but I still have a real affinity because that spoke to me. Uh, I could read that. I couldn't read a lot of other stuff mm-hmm. uh, right mm-hmm. away. So I want to thank you for being honest and vulnerable in particular because that's what, helps when people uh, really describe their experiences. Thank you. Writing was a way for me to work through what I was going through, and I've always written through my whatever the challenges were in my life, and of course this was the very biggest and most cataclysmic challenge, losing my husband very suddenly in a foreign country. And I don't think your your uh, bio mentioned the name of the book, so I want to mention it for people, which is Dying in Dubai, A Memoir of Marriage, Mourning, and the Middle East. And this struck me a lot because uh, my, my, my particular circumstance is that my wife died after a very, very long illness, mm. and the entire illness, we were talking about her impending death. She she kept being told she was going to die, and then she didn't die. <laughs> but oh my that kept that kept it very much on our on our minds. Mm-hmm. So in contrast, uh, you had absolutely no warning, and he was very far from home when it happened. Can you describe to people what what happened? Yes, um, uh, my husband and I had been married for a couple of decades when he. Uh, he was a writer, an advertising copywriter, and he got a job in Dubai 
as a media consultant. And so for three and a half years, he's going back and forth every three weeks at home in New Jersey with me and then in Dubai. And this went on and on and just very stressful. And then one day we got a call and uh, he was in the hospital, not expected to live. And uh, we had to fly over there. You know, I'm thinking about all the stories I've heard of getting the call, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, exactly Mm -hmm. what you're describing. Mm -hmm. And usually it's a matter of running to the hospital. And uh, I was thinking about you and your son, because your son also went with you. Yes. Taking that long, 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 I don't know quite how long that flight is, but I imagine it as being just hours and hours and hours, you know, 20 hours or something, what that well, must have been like. Well, I have a selection here, if you want me to oh, read would it. You, would you share that? Yeah, that would be great. Uh, yeah, it's how the book begins. Uh, I couldn't think of a better way to, to start. I lay in a suspended state, barely breathing, reclining in the plush Emirates airline seats next to my son as we hurtled over the Atlantic. Though the plane was traveling at unimaginable speed with a force beyond my comprehension, my body resisted the inexorable movement as if all five feet of me could stop the inevitable. If we never arrived, we would never have to know. I couldn't eat or sleep, watch a movie or read. The flight to Dubai would take nearly 14 hours, but time meant nothing. It had lost its reliable rhythm. 14 hours, 14 minutes, or 14 seconds, every increment equal to every other, every moment excruciating. We would arrive the next evening, an entire day gone. And with it, what else? I closed my eyes and tried to still my mind and slow my wildly beating heart. I couldn't look ahead to what we might find or back on what we might have already lost. Our security, our family life together, my identity. Was I still a wife? I stared in front of me and watched the elegant flight attendants in their trim tan suits and veiled red fezes as they leaned over other passengers, offering them anything they wanted. When they walked past me, I averted my eyes, closed them, and pretended to sleep. There was nothing they could offer me. I was beyond help. What did I want? Not to think the next thought that pushed toward the surface of my consciousness? Each time it threatened to rise, I forced it down. I knew what it was, but I could not allow myself to think it. If I did, it could be true. He might already be dead. There's such a sense of both time and timelessness (laughs) there, Mm, which I I, I always feel about uh, extremely profound moments, Mm -hmm. that that they go on forever and they have no sense of time at the at the same uh, instant. Um, it's, tr- it's true. Yeah, yeah. You're frozen. Um, yeah. Frozen, exactly. Mm-hmm. But also, you were. Um, planes are so. I guess I could say imprisoning, cramped. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yes. you're just yes. kind of yes. surrounded yes. by people, and mm-hmm. um, and I'm also aware from reading the book that. Um, you didn't have a particularly um, joyful relationship to the place itself that we that you were headed towards. Um, 
Right. <laughs> That's so true. You talked a bit about that, like, before this happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, uh, there's mm-hmm. the obvious that your husband, mm-hmm. who you liked being with, mm-hmm. was incredibly far away. Mm-hmm. I got the sense it was more than that. Yeah, it was. Um, I had been to Dubai twice uh, bef- when he, before this terrible call and uh, going over there in extremis. Um, I'd been there, uh, you know, for a film festival and in a beautiful hotel. But the truth is, the first time I went over in 2005, a few years before Jerry died, I immediately sensed my otherness there. Now, I'm Jewish, um, not particularly observant, but I highly assimilated, but I immediately felt, oh, maybe I don't belong here. Mm. And um, there was an odd, you know, odd shift in me because of that. But the other huge part of it is that, um, is that women are, even women who are very, very well off, are definitely second-class citizens, and I sort of immediately felt that even though I was essentially a tourist the first couple times I went. And so that was kind of, that was another source of alienation, and of course, after he died, it became truly a nightmare to try to get through um, all all that we had to to bring his body back. And if I hadn't had my brothers-in-law with me, I'm not sure how it would have gone. It was, uh, was really daunting. So you you ran into particular difficulties regardless of the fact that you were legally his wife. Mm-hmm. It would seem pretty, mm-hmm. I don't know, straightforward to mm-hmm. a casual observer that your mm-hmm. husband dies in a foreign country. You go mm-hmm. to that country and you bring his body back with you. Right. Um, right. But it was not straightforward. Well, you know, I want to say one more thing about Dubai that, you know, we think of it as this glitzy, glamorous place, sort of Rodeo Drive on Mars, you know, very plush, high buildings, Lamborghinis everywhere. You know, it's, it's, it's an amazingly rich place. But underneath that is a police state. Mm-hmm. And there are police stations in every major building. And... They follow the, it depends on what judge you, you encounter, whether you as an expat are subject to Sharia law in terms of the will or uh, American law. And Sharia law says that you must have every male member of your family stand in front of the judge. That would have included my son and say it was all right for me to inherit his Dubai bank account. And uh, we, you know, we had to circumvent all of that as well. So um, that's the part the tourists don't see, and well, nor should they. You know, it's, it's interesting, too, because it makes me think back to how important it was for me, and now, of course, a kind of prepared death. I I knew it was Mm -hmm. coming with my Mm -hmm. wife. And Mm -hmm. taking care of all of the details of it was Mm -hmm. actually really important to me. And making those decisions was very important to me um, Mm -hmm. and helped me. Even though Mm -hmm. it was hard, it helped me. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to picture actually being... um, 
prevented mm-hmm. in a way from from just doing those things to take care of his body. I I think I would have found that extremely difficult. Yeah, I mean there was getting his body out of there and then there were getting his his assets out of there. Mm-hmm. And the two weeks in Dubai comprised the first half of the book, uh, Dying in Dubai, and the second half of the book is the next 13 months, which involves, of course, my grieving and mourning, but also a tremendous amount of business involving Dubai. So I was still held, there was a thread holding me, tying me to Dubai, even when I had physically left that part of the world. And it was very, very distressing to still to not be able to resolve it quickly. Um, and that's so. This, so I've structured the book in such a way so that you see that the physical journey to Dubai and the inner journey through grieving merge and merge both on a practical level and also on a, a psychic and spiritual level as well. You know, you're bringing something up. I noticed um, a friend of mine, Elaine Mansfield, wrote a book about her grief. And the first half was before her husband died. The second half was in her grief afterwards. Mm -hmm. But I found your book to be divided by in Dubai and back here. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. that that Mm -hmm. there was real differentiation, uh, even though you still had to deal with stuff Mm -hmm. back in the U.S., I could Mm -hmm. see why it was divided that way because that was such an alien experience, trying Mm -hmm. to navigate all of that actually Mm -hmm. in a foreign country and with with its particular difficulties. Yes, yes. I mean, it was really shocking um, what we had to go through. And I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but I will say that there was help. Uh, People came to us and gave us some some help, but, you know, in the course of our time there, and I'm speaking of my brothers-in-law, my sister, and myself, and my son, although I didn't have him walking the walk all the way through, through, um, we went to half a dozen police stations, and my brother-in-law had to go to the mortuary and had to go to the cargo bay of the airport and see the body off and do things that here you would never have conceived of doing um, Mm. to you know, to make sure it was, it was okay. Well, and I know that the smallest, uh, I don't know, somebody made a mistake on my mom's bank account after she mm. died or something like that. I mm-hmm. almost lost my mind, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm a very calm person. You know, it's mm-hmm. hard to deal with that kind of frustration when, uh, you know, grief likes to be, to be a little quieter than that. Yeah, <laughs> so I can imagine yeah. that that was tough. And then I'm also thinking of trying to uh, uh, navigate a son who was, he was in college, is that right? He was 21. He was in his senior, it was his senior year of college. Yeah, the second semester. He was almost ready to graduate. So I but, mean, I call, I call yeah, that not yeah. quite grown, you know? No, he was, no absolutely. <laughs> You know, and the first thing he said to me, one of the first things he said to me when we were alone um, the evening Jerry died was, um, you know, I, 
I need dad. I need him to show me how to be a man. Mm. And, um, you know, it was just heartbreaking. But then, uh, you know, he gives a beautiful, beautiful eulogy for his father at the memorial a couple weeks later. And my brother, who I had repeated this, all these remarks to, said, turns to me and whispers in my ear and says, he's already a man. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, that's, I, I would agree with you that 21 is really just the very beginning. But, you know, in essence, he was already in a different place than his peers, I think all of whom still had their parents. And I think that changes you immediately. Immediately. That's, that's so very true. Mm -hmm. My oldest child was 14. Mm. And, and all of the kind of uh, adolescent um, tension and, you know, Mm -hmm. fighting your way out of being your mom's kid and all that ended that day. Yeah. Um, Never, just never, uh, never resurfaced. I think it just changes the relationship too. Uh, yes. between you and your and your child. Mm-hmm. Well, we are so deeply I, close to each other, and we always were, but we're close in a way that's so much more profound now, um, so much more um, connected. And he's, you know, there are a couple people that I go to when I really need someone and I'm feeling very vulnerable, and he's one of them, and I'm certainly that for him as I might be anyway, because I'm his mom, but, you know, it's, we, there's almost never a conversation between us where we don't talk about Jerry, where we don't talk about his dad. And, uh, so I want to, I want to come back and talk to that more after the break. Mm -hmm. That's such Mm -hmm. a big subject, Mm -hmm. you know, how, how our relationships change and Mm -hmm. particularly parents and children. I think mm-hmm. there's just such an impact. So let's come back to that. And listeners, you can, during the break, find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And you can find Rosalie Blueston at R-O-S-E-L-E-E-B-L-O-O-S-T-O-N.com, rosaliebluston.com. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? 
We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Rosalie Blueston, whose book, Dying in Dubai, chronicles her husband's sudden death while working there and also her own grief. And before the break, we were talking about kids and grief, your son in particular, and and how going through that type of experience together changes them and changes the way that that we uh, interact Um the closeness, and I, I uh, was thinking about, you know, my own 14-year-old who, no more, no more teenage struggles after that mm-hmm. point. And mm-hmm. um, your son, you know, becoming a man, um, for good or ill, I mean, that is a real imprint that then shows itself in the rest of their lives, isn't it? Yes, it is. And, and you know, it, since that time when he lost his dad... One of his very close friends lost one parent after another within about 18 months. And they knew each other as peripheral friends in his high school group. But after that, they've become brothers, I would say. And Mm -hmm. Molly was able to really be there for him in a way that um, everyone wanted to be, but he had insights that uh, no one else really did because he lived it. And, um, you know, they have a bond that's uh, unbreakable because of that. And it's, a, it's a kind of wisdom you don't wish on them so early. Right, right. But, you know, he's, a, he's happy. He's a happy person, Oliver. He's 30 now, and he's <laughs> doing very well. He followed his father's footsteps into writing, advertising writing, which he said he wasn't going to do, and then he did, and he's extremely good at it and very happy and feels like he knows his father better now because he's living in his world. He's working in his world, which is kind of amazing and remarkable, and I'm, I'm just thrilled that it's worked out that way. Absolutely, and that it makes him so happy. It does, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh- yeah. Uh, you know that I, I should have I shouldn't have said good or ill. It's more like good and ill, of yeah. course. Um, and you know this sense of being yes, he probably did have some unusual insights for his age group. Also, I think it's a matter of not um, at least if grief is allowed, which of course both of us are mm-hmm. not. You know, we didn't try to get out of it, I guess. No, so that not at all. That <laughs> probably allowed them. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. They, they, my daughters don't pull away from people in grief. Exactly. And and so many people do. They don't. They don't mm-hmm. offer platitudes. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't say they're. You know, they're in a better place. I mean, there's just nothing that interrupts the connection in grief. Because they've been there. 
Right. And that right. may be the biggest thing. Um, right. That they yeah. now have to offer their peers. Right. He's not afraid to cry and to laugh about his dad with me, with other people. Um, he's not afraid of feeling. And, uh, and he might have been that person anyway, but I think this has really um, cemented that. And I think it's a good thing. I really do. I think it's important mm-hmm. to allow all of your feelings, no matter how painful, to flow through you. Um, that's, that was my only way through it. Absolutely. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. I have a friend out here I, I interviewed who was maybe early 30s when he lost his mother. He now does something called You're Going to Die, and all these quite young people go to talk about death mm-hmm. through the arts. You know, mm-hmm. And he never would have invented that or uh, commit to it without mm-hmm. his own experience, and he's just serving so many people's needs there. So that does right. happen. <laughs> that that yeah. does happen. Yeah. No, uh, Ollie's aware that there are things that you don't get to do twice. He understands the importance of being there for the people in your life. And he says this. He's, he's a writer as well, very articulate about um, being present, uh, that we, we only get one shot at really being there for the people we love. And we need to do it in every way possible um, because we never know. Never know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which I imagine is amplified by the suddenness of what happened, too. I think so. I think the suddenness, uh, I would say we were both in shock for a good long time, uh, which may be somewhat different than if you have some, at least intellectual, preparation for, um, for losing a loved one. Um, right. I, I was certainly in greater shock than I even knew uh, for months. And um, I don't know if you'd like me to read the section about, which I think it's really I was about just that. about to invite you to read that. Um, yeah, because, that, because that's it what really it's really about. So, yeah, it really calls forth that sense of uh, fugue almost, <laughs> fugue state. Yeah. Exactly. Well, we were, Ollie and I were at, uh, we went to dinner with a, his high school history teachers who had married each other, and we were there for dinner, and this is what happened. I looked down at the blue-edged porcelain and counted two small plates for the girls and one, two, three, four large ones for the adults. Oh, I thought, there should be five. I studied the plates and counted again. One was missing, definitely. I wondered if I should say something. No, they would realize the mistake when we all sat down. Well, maybe I should be helpful, go inside and get one more. I decided to wait. But the missing plate bothered me. I counted yet again. One for Jillian, one for Jeff, one for Ollie, and one for me. Oh, God, four. There were four of us, not five. I swallowed broke out in a cold sweat and told myself to breathe. Thank goodness I hadn't said anything. The evening had been going so well, so normally, they'd have thought I had lost my mind. Ollie would have been upset because for the past ten minutes I had lost my mind. For those interminable minutes staring at the plates, counting and recounting them over and over, I had been thinking magically a la Joan Didion. I couldn't leave my husband out of the count. For the remainder of the meal, I felt broken, as if something inside me had cracked. 
This had been the first time since the January phone call summoning me to Jerry's bedside overseas that I had lost contact with reality. I had faced every aspect of what was required of me head on. I had been strong. I had been present until that night. For all my stubborn insistence on coping with what was, I still had not truly accepted the most basic fact that Jerry was dead and, as Ollie had said only the night before, that he was never coming back. There had been three of us. Now there were two. Two and two made four. That really caused me to uh, think a lot about that phenomenon, which I realized I have experienced with my mother who died a couple of years ago, you know, reaching mm-hmm. for the phone. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it still happens now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. I really didn't experience that with my spouse. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I was puzzling that out. And I, I think it might have to do with how... Uh, we had a very long wake. Mm-hmm. And so her body was in our home after her death for almost two days. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's why. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. somewhere in that, I can really see why certain cultures, I think we've lost something not having that experience mm-hmm. in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's really hard to take it in quickly. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. It's yeah, hard we, to make we it. We real. don't quite get it, huh? Yeah, yeah. It's hard to make it real. It's hard to accept that it's real. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it. Your, I mean, your life is turned inside out, and in some ways, is not recognizable. You yourself are sometimes not recognizable to yourself, and so it it skews all of your perceptions. And this just, I was gobsmacked after, after that little incident. And that is really about the same time that I started to write. Uh. I needed to write. That was the same spring. It was April. And that's when I began writing little scenes of little pieces about widowhood. I thought they were going to be an essay collection about widowhood. But I needed to write because that was, I realized after that happened at the dinner party that I need to um, get this out and look at it and, you know, really have a dialogue with myself about what's happening. And writing is always my way of doing that. Mm, Absolutely. The other thing that was very uh evident in the book or or came through clearly was that you were trying to kind of sort the relationship which you didn't get a chance to do with him yes and and figure out kind of the ups and downs and ins and outs of it by yourself and so exactly. i can imagine that you know telling your own stories to yourself about it um gave it a chance to be a, a conversation um not with him, but a different mm-hmm. type of conversation where you could kind of um, sort that out for yourself because you didn't get any time to do that. Right. I mean, uh, you know, as I was saying, the, the uh, three and a half years he was traveling back and forth were a tremendous strain on us. We had never been apart for that long, ever before. And then it became a regular thing, and it put an enormous strain on our marriage 
and caused both of us to act in ways that were uncharacteristic. And I, um, I had to rest. I don't want to, again, give things away, but I would say I was concerned about his behavior over there and what was he, what was he really doing and who was he doing it with. And these were the kinds of things that I, he and I would have hammered out. We were not afraid to hash out problems, and we always did, and we always got through it. But when he died, there, was a, there were a lot of strings and threads that were, you know, unresolved, and I had to clean it all up myself, at least, you know, try to come to terms with what was going on and also come to terms with what things I could never know. Um, That's what struck me. Unknown things I will never know to this day will not know. But I am, I can tell you, you know, eight years later that I, I'm completely at peace with it. And I feel that I really understand him. I understand what may or whatever happened. I understand why. Mm. And I feel, I I feel that what I have, what I still have, is his love. I still have the love. Whatever difficulties we had, the love, the love never went away. So, mm-hmm. and that was not something that, of course, right away I could, I could believe, because sure. I was so shocked by some of what I was discovering. And but I really. Um, really worked through it, and I feel that I know him better than I did when he was alive, if that makes any sense. Oh, it makes complete sense to me. (laughs) It would. Mm -hmm, Um, But, you know, over these three years that I've been doing the show, I find that what ends up um, really taking more emphasis, it was just sort of in my background and my of-courseness before, but now Mm -hmm. I find myself saying every week, relationships don't stop. Right. That you and he have continued to evolve. Whatever you think that means, it's true. Mm -hmm. You're not where you were eight years ago. I'm not where I was, you know, 21 years ago. And what a phenomenal thing, really. Right. Well, you were moved to do this program. Absolutely. And I was moved to write this book. Absolutely. And both of those journeys come from our love and our, the relationship with our spouses. And out of that has come something creative. And we hope will, um, I certainly hope that this book gives people solace and, and understanding of grief and also understanding of, of, of life that, you know, life continues and love does not die which is a cliche, but I'm afraid it's really apt. (laughs) It's an apt one. For sure. And then there's another aspect, too, which is that the territories of our experience Mm -hmm. are safe. You know, you really dove into your experience. I'm guessing at first didn't feel like you had a choice, but, of course, Mm -hmm. some people shut it down. (laughs) So, in a way, you did have a choice. And and you came through. You know, we came exactly. through. I think exactly. that's just, people don't believe that to be the truth, even though it's obvious that, pe- that people survive, you know. But the yeah. idea that 
uh, all the feelings and experiences we have inside are perfectly okay to have. That's a little less fully understood, I think. Yeah, I got some really interesting, I mean, I think there are two things. One, that, yes, all feelings are allowed, not only allowed, for me it was a tsunami. I couldn't have stopped it if I'd wanted to. I mean, the feeling, the tsunami of feeling. So whether it was anger and despair and hurt and love and whatever, it was, it just kept coming and there was no resisting it uh, for me. But um, a friend of mine said something to me that really stayed with me um, early on. She said, don't let anyone tell you how long this should take, meaning mourning. Yes. And I thought that was such a gift because people, you know, the out in the world, there's, you know, people say, oh, a year, you know, a year, the first year is so high. Well, first year is no picnic. But this is a process. This is a process that can go on, and I don't mean in a toxic way, but grieving has, the state. The stages aren't in, in, an or, in, in the order, and the timing is very personal and organic, and it can take quite some time, beyond a year, for one to feel like you have yourself back and you can move forward in a really um, healthy way. And you really have to give yourself a lot of permission to take all the time you need. Oh, I so absolutely agree with that. And and I guess I would add, sometimes I don't, I, I didn't ever get myself back. I got a different self yeah. back. I had to adjust to the phenomenal changes mm-hmm. that had happened inside of me mm-hmm. and get used to that person. And that takes as mm-hmm. much time as getting used to the, the loss, uh, at right. least it did for me. It was kind of a stunning event. We're going to go to our second break, and we'll pick up there when we get back. Uh, listeners, you can go to either the Good Grief page on Voice America or to my website, weatheringgrief.com. And to find Rosalie and her book, Dying in Dubai, go to R-O-S-E-L-E-E-B-L-O-O-S-T-O-N.com, rosaliebluston.com. Back after the break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that'll help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. Mm-hmm. 
listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm here with Rosalie Bluestone, and we've been talking about her book, Dying in Dubai, which just came out this week. Uh, before the break, we were talking about how um, grieving and and uh, getting through that process is also about kind of getting used to yourself in, in your newness. And I was thinking, uh, Rosalie, about how you know, you he had been living far away, so you'd been essentially alone a lot of the time living your life for those years before. But I have to think that the experience of that was just astronomically different after he died, even though his physical absence was the same. And well, I wondered no, how I would, that... Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. No, I would say his physical absence wasn't the same because when I was home aware that he'd be back coming back in a week or two, I was, there was a part of me always waiting and we spoke every single day. We uh, never yes. had a day. I mean, rarely if he was traveling, uh, may, we might miss a day, but then we speak twice the next day. So there was never a day that we weren't speaking to each other. So I was always hearing his voice. And sometimes we would iChat, which is the old version of Skype. Uh Um, So there was, so, but it was that he's, I was always feeling that he was coming back. And I was always attached because we were still connected on a daily basis, at least by voice and image. Um, So it was, it was the never coming back. He's never coming back that I took me quite a while to accept and adjust and adjust to. Um, And I know I did not enjoy the time that we spent um, apart when he was alive, but, you know, the lack of resolution, the lack of, you know, the suddenness of just being wrenched apart by death was, was very shocking. And I, you seem to agree that somehow you're different in some ways other than just having gotten through grief, which, of course, does say you can get through grief, but, <laughs> but well, you know, because right. right. you did. But um, what, what other kinds of ways would you say life is different for you at well, this Well, I want to quote another uh, widow friend who told me again early on before I could quite believe what she was saying she said you will become more like your your husband than you ever thought possible you're going to internalize all the qualities he had that you used to use for ballast that were maybe qualities other than your own and you're going to take them in and you're going to become them and I didn't know what she was talking about until that started to happen and Jerry was very gregarious not that I'm shut in but uh, he was much more social than I and I am and he would chat everyone up you know every every person in the store at the gas station or walking down the street 
now that's me. That's, that's exactly how I am now. And it's very, it's very different. I mean, I have really, um, I've really absorbed that, um, that quality. I, I joined the Rotary in Rhinebeck, New York, where I live, something I never would have done. That's something Jerry would have done. <laughs> and so I, so I would say that's one very distinct change in myself that I see and that I kind of enjoy. It's kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> now that you're used to it, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of fun, you know, being a little more like him in that way. So That's, that's great. Uh, I'll tell you a funny example. My wife was black. She was from Mississippi. She was a great, great cook. Mm. And um, she made, um, because she didn't put okra in it, she'd call it a pot of something instead of <laughs> the dish with okra. And, of course, I didn't make it. Mm-hmm. And and after she died, I suddenly found myself cooking that dish, mm-hmm. which I never, ever thought I would cook that dish. It was It was rather right. comical. And I cooked it a lot the first couple of years. So I know exactly oh. what you're talking about. Yeah. The the other thing that stands out is you got some truly good wisdom about what the, about the process you were going through, and I'm thinking of this other passage that you that that you're going to share uh, uh, that happened actually in Dubai. Dubai that yes. fits in the category. Could you share that? Yes, um, in Dubai, Dubai wasn't all nightmare. There were some really kind and lovely people there. And one of Jerry's friends, Wally, invited me over to lunch with his wife. And um, this is what he shared with me. After we ate, Wally asked how I was emotionally, and the conversation shifted. I stuttered something incoherent. I was still much too stunned to analyze my state of being. He spoke of his father's death. The death of a loved one is something so huge, at first as big as the universe, surrounding and swallowing us completely. Gradually it becomes smaller, only as big as the world, then an ocean, then a tree, and then as big as a large person who stands next to us all of the time. Finally it merges with us, and we carry it inside ourselves wherever we go. He held an imaginary ball at his side. It becomes portable, manageable, a part of who we are and will always be. As I listened for the first time in almost two weeks, I felt comforted. That's beautiful, I said. Thank you. He spoke truth. He had mourned. He knew the terrain of this land I had just entered and had given me a map of what was to come, for which I was grateful. I think that is really the most beautiful description. You know, there are a lot of ways to describe the evolution, but that's so such a poetic framing, and and just rings true, doesn't it? It does, and it became. I really I hung on to it uh, in the next year, and it became a thread in the book because I. Over the next 13 months, I would measure my progress, if you will, in mourning with how I felt that metaphor. And there are passages in the book where I am, you know, where it is 
now not as big as the universe anymore, where it is a tree. And I, well, I'm not going to, I don't think it spoils it for anyone to know that years later, he is a, a ball inside me. I do carry Jerry with me. And uh, I still use that metaphor. I still, um, it was one of the most helpful and beautiful things anyone did for me or said to me uh, in Dubai or in the States. It's it's interesting you said said a few times you, you know spoiler alert kind of thing yeah. but uh, <laughs> but the thing is um, the book is something quite other than talking about these experiences because you write so beautifully and um, it the book allowed me to experience some of what you experienced in a very visceral kind of way so. I don't. I don't think people should be deterred from reading your book just because they know some of the details. Mm-hmm. Um, but it might actually deepen it to have heard you talk about it. Um, oh, I'm glad. Good. Because I think um, our talking voices are different, aren't they, than our writing voices by and it's large. It's so true. Yeah, it's so true, and I really notice it when I read aloud. <laughs> thinking. But, yes. You know, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, so you're going into uh, possibly an experience I can also relate to, which is sharing, you know, what I do on this show is share my experience with mm-hmm. someone who's had an, an experience somewhat similar. Uh, every week I'm, I'm revisiting in mm-hmm. some sense. Mm-hmm. And I know, I know you're uh, heading on uh, a book tour Yes. And you will be, therefore, doing something a little similar, um, sharing, sharing the book um, many times. Um, first of all, I want you to let people know some of those places in case they happen to be nearby and might be able to come listen. And then well, let's talk about what that's like <laughs> a little oh, bit. Oh, absolutely. Um, well, uh Tomorrow, I don't know, do we air? We're airing right now. We're live uh, right this minute. <laughs> they're wonderful. So that tomorrow, October 6th, I'm in Rhinebeck at Oblong Books and Music. And November 6th, I'm in Woodstock at the Golden Notebook. And November 16th, I'll be in Kingston, New York uh, at uh, the Barnes & Noble. And next year, I'll be traveling to Austin and Santa Fe. And, all, and you can find all the events on my website uh, as well, so um, yeah, going to be taking taking it out there, and uh, I will say that I had my launch in Montclair. Of course, half the book is set there on Saturday, uh-huh. and it was I was extremely nervous beforehand. I mean, the week before, thinking it was almost a little PTSD because <laughs> that uh-huh. last time I, I I you know I, we had the memorial there. It was. I raised Ollie there. Everybody in the audience was going to know Jerry and me and Oliver. And, uh, and I was really um, beside myself, but it was fantastic. And uh, Packed House, I read some very specific Montclair things to them as well as some general <laughs> stuff. And it was really very, very affirming. Um, it was just a night full of love. And people were laughing, people were crying, and um, a beautiful, beautiful thing. I, 
I, I, I mean, I would say it was an event I would equal, equal to my wedding, equal to the birth of my child. Oh. <laughs> it was a major event, major event, uh, personally. So I'm kind of thrilled now to take it out there and share with people and people who won't know me that well, but you know, it's, it's. But what a tremendous way you chose to start. Yeah. By, by being, by sharing it with people who do, do know you. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, and probably the people they brought along. I would imagine. Exactly. There were people who didn't know us, but there were friends and um, yeah, it was a remarkable uh, healing. I would say it was a healing event. Uh, certainly for me, it was additional healing. I feel pretty healed these days, but I would say this was just a lot of love, a lot of love in the event. Uh, you know, I was at a grief ritual recently where it was said by the leader, um, there are aspects of grief that can only happen in community. Yes. And and that comes to mind when you say that, that you kind of had a community healing, mm-hmm. um, which it sounds as if you had good people with you, but that sense of a whole group of people being together in it, that sounds quite remarkable and wonderful. Yeah. I know I had a dear friend say to me who she couldn't make it to the event, but she and her husband were couples, friends of ours, and and she sat down and read the book in one sitting and said, wrote me a beautiful note last night, and I, she said, um, it's really a love letter to Jerry and to Oliver, and, you know, and I, of course, reading it crying, because it's just Mm. lovely to be, it was so lovely for her to understand the intent. Um, You know, we had a real marriage, not a perfect one, but we certainly had a real love, and I I thought it was um, it was really uh, marvelous to know that it had communicated uh, to someone who knew. Oh, and I I don't I didn't mm-hmm. we've never met I didn't know mm-hmm. him at all, right. but that came through that you were willing to uh, share the whole thing, mm-hmm. and in the end it was so clear how much the three of you actually mm-hmm. love each other. No, thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and that is what stays, and that is why we we have them inside us now. Our, our dear, what a beautiful, our what a beautiful uh, note to end on. I want to thank you really so much for being with me today. I've, I've enjoyed the talk a lot. I did too. Thank you, Claire. And I hope Cheryl, listeners are <laughs> Cheryl. Yeah, we're thinking of our mutual uh, we were friend Claire. Claire Smith. Hi, Claire. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, and Cheryl. I hope, I hope I, you're welcome. I hope people will go read your book, and they can find you at rosaleebluston.com. Next week, I'll be talking with Erica Buist. After her father's father-in-law's death, she suffered from severe anxiety and agoraphobia and chose to address it by traveling the world to places where death is confronted more directly, and she's writing a book about that. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. 
Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.